0: Welcome to Giving. I'm your host, Alex Godin. Today I'm here with Nicholas Thorne. One of the best things that happened to me in the last few years is that I found my way into an office where I got to sit across from Nicholas. Nicholas is a general partner at Prehype where he's a deep thinker about entrepreneurship and what that means for the world. Nicholas, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. One of the best things that happened to me over the past couple years is finding my way to an office where I got to sit next to Alex Cotin.
0: It's mutual. Oh, that's really convenient. Um, So I'd love to maybe start by understanding what the hell Prehype is and what you do there all day.
1: Prehype means something different to everyone who's involved with it, which I think is a feature, not a bug, but makes definition slightly challenging my version of it PreHype is a super duper early stage venture firm i call it a venture firm as opposed to a venture capital firm because more of what we do is build businesses than invest in them we do that for our own account so we build businesses that we want to see in the world um, we invest in the businesses of people in our network and we also build businesses in partnership with Large corporations to try to leverage the very best of what big companies have to offer to solve interesting problems.
0: I love that. And I'm very lucky to, as an entrepreneur who has a nonprofit, be a part of the Prehype family and have been sort of incubated out of Prehype as a nonprofit. And um, the ethos here is really special because it's really about. Um, building things that serve people. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think when you
1: look back to the, so Henrik who started Prehype, who been on the show as far as I know, um, had an interesting insight that was mostly self-serving seven or eight years ago when, when we kind of got into starting Prehype, which in his mind, the world of business building had never, was never going to be the same, it had changed Uh, forever. And the primary version of that was that if you think back like 15 years ago, or I guess maybe 20 years ago at this point, if you think about the ingredients for building a business, you have something like um, an entrepreneur who's passionate about and interested in solving a problem, uh, an interesting problem to solve, and the capital to kind of make it all work. And um, for any number of reasons, the venture capital industry got built in a way where capital was kind of the perceived to be the scarce thing, and so people with the capital had control of that supply, and therefore people with interesting problems to solve and the desire to solve them came like to the, you know like uh, moths to the flame of the capital. As a result, that kind of shifts the balance of power towards how do we find interesting problems to solve and the people who are interested in solving them. Um, and so I think Henrik knew from. Uh, a long time ago, and I give him a lot of credit for it, that being really good at finding problems to solve and the people with whom to solve them was actually going to grow in value, appreciate in value, and become more important as part of that ecosystem. When you couple that with a kind of an institutional bias towards thinking about businesses through the lens of that a really good business really understands the problem they're trying to solve, and if you really can't get to the bottom of that, if you can't have a really nuanced articulation of the problem that you're trying to solve, then you probably are like setting down the wrong path to begin with, and you should always be coming back to that as some version of North Star. And so that's been kind of baked into the methodology from the beginning, and, and it starts to like kind of percolate into the culture very quickly because everyone, that's ever what everyone talks about, is like, what's the problem you're solving? What's the problem you're solving? And it's a little bit nauseating at some point because you're like, all right, I get it, I get it. There's there's more to this than that, and there is. but. Um, it's kind of a baseline, foundational concept that has just become very much a part of the organization.
0: And baked into the idea of a problem solving is that it's a solving a problem for a person, that it's not necess- that's solving a problem in the world and solving a problem for a person. I think so that's right. I think knowing who, like the
1: customer, quote unquote, of that, of who, who's going whose problem is it is is crucial to understanding it to begin with and really being able to mm-hmm. try to address it. So yeah, it becomes personal at a level of. It's, it's not in the abstract, it's not academic. And I think that then cuts into more of like the approach, which is to say, let's be really good at, at satisfying some customer in whatever context we satisfy them. Um, and you've obviously advanced the model here of thinking about the different ways to satisfy that customer and the different formats and business models, if you will, through which to do that. But let's be super clear about who our customer is and let's figure out how to satisfy them and then and then if we're doing that and we're doing that economically and all these different things then there's a business there's a kernel of a business to be built but you ought to know who that person is and you ought to be able to find them and get in touch with them and satisfy them and if that's like the first step of any of this
0: and when you look at the successful businesses that have come out of pre-hype a lot of them are about like really helping a customer whether that's roman which helps Men with erectile dysfunction really live a fuller life. Or BarkBox, which helps uh, dog people really love their dog and serves those dogs. Or Managed by Q, that serves both office managers but also cleaners in a really humane and respectful way.
1: Yeah, I think they all have the people who have built those businesses, who have been entrepreneurs and residents or partners here, are you know keenly aware of who the customer is. Their their serving and trying to find a different way to do that. And so if you're kind of a student of the businesses that have been built out of here, which is probably as much as I can claim to be, um, that for sure is a common denominator. And you look at the Bark team who, you know, I think, I don't know, that it shouldn't be surprising that the buyer of dog products are not dogs. They're the people who own the dogs. Uh, And so they've always used this word about dog parents. And just the, the verbiage is a dog owner versus a dog parent is a nuanced twist that demonstrates that you understand something about the way that person perceives themselves that maybe everyone else who's serving that market does not. And so, and in the Roman case, obviously, Zach has a very personal relationship with this problem. But I remember talking to Zach actually the first time, I was like, come on. I, I kind of like gave him a hard time. Um, I was like, you know, selling ED pills over the internet, that kind of sounds... A cliche or you know kind of business building for the sake of business building or at least that's what i kind of asked him and he very quickly like dispelled this notion and and, and i appreciate that he did and um laid out this long-term vision about men's health and how erectile dysfunction is this early Warning indicator of bad health and all these different things that he knew for himself. He knew based on his father being a physician. He knew uh, based on having gone out and talked to other people about this. So yeah, it's a it, it is a very it is a common denominator and and probably something that we we should actually lean into even further with the businesses that we we try to invest in or build or support. Which is if you're really not passionate about that, it's probably not got a lot of legs.
0: I think that if you're summing that up in one word, it's empathy. Right? It's empathy for the customer. And for you, I think having spent some time with you, the word empathy and going back to this idea of giving in the podcast really goes back to your upbringing and your family. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I I'm hesitant to like, claim a lot of ownership of of anything like that, but um, but yeah, I you know I think I grew up in. I think that what what you're alluding to and what is specifically relevant to this conversation is. Uh, I grew up in a, a family where uh, my mom, who is a total badass, was always very actively engaged with organizations in our community um, oftentimes with starting those organizations or being a good partner to and sounding board to the founder of organizations and specifically with a focus around um, inner city education
0: and what are what are the examples of that, that idea of um, supporting organizations.
1: Yeah, so I think she would. You know, she was like the founding uh, chairwoman. Uh, she would call it a chair. I always joke that that's an inanimate object um, uh, of uh, one of the first charter schools in New York, the Bronx Prep Charter School. Uh, she's been a longtime supporter of, uh, and and played a similar role to people at Pure Health Exchange, which is a uh, now nationwide uh, organization that. Um, Helps deliver health education into the public high school system. Uh, she played similar roles at um, in the Future Project uh, and um, a, a long list of other organizations that are all, you know, typically have these characteristics of, uh, and she's been a long time a friend and partner and mentor and supporter, I, I think it's fair to say, of uh, Rich Berlin at Dream. Charter School, formerly Harlem RBI, So there's a long list of people who I think uh, you you could probably talk to, and she would be terribly embarrassed uh, to have this in any version of public air. Uh, but but who you know I think think of her as one of their early advisors, board members, uh, investors. Uh, what you know to use a more kind of not for profit term. Um, and I think she's you know, really enjoyed playing that role and has dedicated massive time and energy and resources to um, trying to be a good you know, partner to those people. But what does that really mean? I mean, literally on the most practical level, it's it's uh, people coming to, you know, meet with her or her going to meet with them and, and talking through the very basics of what they're doing and are they doing it at enough scale? Are they, and you know, I think one thing you and I have talked about is there's this kind of interesting dynamic for nonprofits in particular of Uh, incredible focus on the one hand serving the nth family in a really high quality way uh, which has huge long-term implications if you can change the life of one kid who might otherwise um, not get a great education and then does get a great education that's something that I mean you cannot quantify the value of that we should all probably spend our time you know incrementally trying to do that Uh, and yet so, so on the one hand, these organizations all have these incredible focus, and on the other hand, they wanna be around for 25, 50, 100 years, hopefully. And so they're, they're not things that are being built to be sold or be built to, uh, you know, for the founders to move on. Of course, at some point they may, but, but there's this conception that this is a very long-term thing. And so I think wrestling with and thinking through and trying to balance that incredibly long-term vision with the desire to be very focused on delivering value um, and, and calibrating one's focus along that ambition spectrum. You know, what should our focus be today, this week, this month, this year? Uh, should we be building a longer-term, more sustainable organization? Should we be serving the nth family? Should we be serving 100 more families? And, you know, I think that thought process is, is a very challenging one, I would imagine. I probably haven't participated in that many of them, but it seems common to a lot of these organizations, and I think it's something that my mom has spent a lot of time with people doing, so is a topic of conversation that we
0: think about. And there's a, there's a lot of pieces embedded in that. Uh, one of them is the idea of deep versus wide, right? Do you go deep with one family and uh, in the case of Habitat for Humanity, whether we build them a house or are you helping a million families put one meal on the table?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's you know, well said and, and I think it seems to be a core tension to a building a nonprofit organization in particular. Maybe I don't know, we we you know, I'd be curious for your thought from your experiences, how similar or different that is from a from a for-profit business building objective, but but it certainly seems to be something that a nonprofit has to has to continue to keep an eye on.
0: I mean, as I think about it, I think about the conversations I have with for-profit entrepreneurs where there's sort of this another tension of are you making a thousand dollars from one customer or a million dollars from one customer? And if you're Facebook, you make Fifty bucks a customer, but you do it for billions of people. And if you're um, Slack, you make a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks yeah. per customer. and You do it for much less people. And the extreme, if you're SpaceX, you have three customers or totally. six customers, and they pay you a lot of money.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's the same calculus at some level. It's a question of your 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 model and and who you want to support. I think that. The, the part that feels different to me about it is that um, if you're Facebook and you serve one customer and that's $50 of value, um, I think you go home at the end of the day and you say, all right, well, we gotta get a billion of them in order to make this worthwhile. Uh, if we could have any organization serving 100 families with $50 of value, quote unquote, but it was a sustainable organization that'd be around for the rest of time, uh, that sounds like it's value creative uh, at some level, and we should probably do that. So I, I guess the, the scale at which, I think there's a sustainability topic that is interesting, which is, how ambitious is your goal on the one hand, but how sustainable is it on the other? And so the the deep versus wide question, I think, does exist on this ambition topic. Um, but there's this incremental overlay, which maybe more businesses should keep in mind, of like, okay, at the cost of what? And for how long can I can I do that? Because maybe having super deep, but relatively limited yeah, scale influence or impact, but in a truly sustainable way, the like the lifetime value of that is there's like a third dimension that I think starts to factor in as you think about those types of organizations. I think that has to do with the fact, frankly, the fact that again, the organization is not built with like any goal. There's no person in your cap table looking for their money back. Um, and so automatically you you have a, a bias to think long term, that I think is very healthy, but, I, but I'd imagine also kind of daunting.
0: And I think that in some of the conversations I've had with nonprofit founders, it's actually risky. That when you look at the sort of success stories of nonprofits, there's a little bit of a trap at a couple million dollars a year in revenue, mm. where you know you're going to keep going and you know you're going to be serving people. And you know you have that you do your gala every year, and you raise your two million bucks, and you're still in, still able to do that work. Mm-hmm. And I really respect the people who are doing that, but for me, coming from a startup background, and for you coming from a startup background, we come from a world of go big or go home, right? Yeah. That, and where you acknowledge the economies of scale, right? Yep. So I have a nonprofit, and we um, deliver groceries, and we uh, know are really. Gunning for significant scale because we know that if we have that significant c- scale, the cost of the groceries that we deliver to low-income families plummets. That when we do buying when we're buying a million dollars worth of groceries, we spend less uh, per eggplant.
1: And I think there's something about. I, I would actually argue that um, a lot of entrepreneurs, pro- like for-profit entrepreneurs, let's call them, probably struggle with a similar thing, which is the. The energy, even though they have that attitude of go big or go home or whatever the right word is, they continuing to lean into your ambition is a, is an exhausting exercise right um, and every day requires that you kind of level up and, and get out in front of your skis again and uh, just continue to push that forward lean into and that takes agitation that takes surrounding yourself with people who will hold you to that ambition and will offer the perspective that, yeah, it's really great that you got to that level, but can't we go bigger? Can't we influence uh, more? Can't we do this in more cities or uh, more countries or whatever the uh, situation is? So I, what it triggers in my mind is is this topic of like, how do you surround yourself with people who will continue to push that ambition? Um, and you, I think, do an amazing job of that, right? The people that you seem to surround yourself with are people with whom you engage in a conversation, even this podcast about, you know, are are we thinking big enough? Are we pushing the pace? Are we, you know, when is the moment that we grow to the next city or the next site or the uh, whatever, and and how quickly should we do that? And um, that conversation should almost be the only constant is that level of kind of agitation. But I think that takes a community at some level and a group of people who you kind of enlist in a process of saying, hey, Please agitate, you know. Please remind me that this is my goal and my ambition, and um, and maybe in particular in a, you know, that might be baked into the DNA of a for-profit company because there are these incentive structures that almost force the conversation. And so I wonder if in a nonprofit context, um, that's the role of your advisory network. And so super important that you be very effective at picking that group of people because if you don't surround yourself with people who agitate, everyone will get comfortable and. Who knows what happens,
0: and it's one of the reasons I'm really lucky to get to sit across from you. Is that you bring a mindset of well, how big can this be? How can how can how can you make it bigger? And I'm, I really enjoy getting lunch together for that reason. Um, another thing I'd like to dig into in that that point that you brought up earlier is this idea of like no end game, right? That for a nonprofit, in fact, there are three potential solutions. Like one is that um, they solve their problem right the people who are working on ending i think river blindness is the effective altruism cause which is like river blindness is something we can end it kills a lot of people and we know that there's like if we put x amount of money into it we will solve this problem and then all of the river blindness charities will just go away right um the second is you hit such significant scale that you become a part of the fabric that you can't disappear right the food banks in New York City are never going to like disappear. Because they're just like, they're so important, they're so efficient that like the money will be there forever. And then there's this like third point, which is like, okay, we're going to keep going, and it's working, but it's not a forever fabric of society organization, and it's not a solve-the-problem organization. Um, and that's also one of the things I've learned in, from this podcast and talking to people is that there's it's really important to make that distinction.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, do you have to decide that up front? Or, you know, and and if you don't have a plan towards which of those types of things are you building, can you can you ever get there? Um, and can you adjust on the fly? Or is there one of them that you should be shooting for and the others you kind of, you land at because it becomes clear that you're not gonna achieve the one you're shooting for. But it triggers in my mind, another person I've come across over time is a woman named Andrea Wenner who um, built a organization and i'm going to screw up all the specifics of it but was building uh playgrounds in and around new york and i think specifically on either uh city land or in schools but but eventually they 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 achieved the goal it was over like they did it and they declared victory Um, and i've always thought about that as like an amazing to your point on riverbond it's like what an awesome concept that you just say this is what we're going to be really really good at this is a thing we are gonna commit ourselves to. We are gonna be the best people in the world at doing this. We're gonna find all the places we can do it or within our sphere of influence and we're gonna go do them. And we're gonna play out our model until it's done. And then when it's done, we're gonna like go home and you know, be really excited that we achieved our objective. And I, I don't, to me, there's something very appealing about that. Um, and at the same time, obviously, if you can stitch yourself into the fabric of a community or a society, like would an even an amazing thing also but I don't think one better than the other but just two very different approaches.
0: And I think there's also a there's an, again a for-profit analogy that like there are companies that have started and we're sitting in the pre-hype office in this office that have started with the goal of okay I want to ch- spin out a million bucks a year so that I can go on vacation whenever I want and there are other businesses that have started here when the founder like pretty clearly at the beginning said i want to sell this business for 50 million dollars yes. i never this is never going to be a business that ipos i want it to um sell for 50 million dollars yeah and then there have been people who start here and say we're going ipo or bust because yeah. and we're gonna like we might go bust and we're more likely to go bust than we are to ipo but by doing those trade-offs we are more likely to to become a lasting part of the fabric for sure um yeah. yeah, and again, I think it then goes to like, who do you surround
1: yourself with that holds you accountable to, to those things and, and why, it, and is that kind of organic to the to the way that you're building the organization, right? And because I think those things have huge impacts on like the types of people who get engaged. And, um, you know, when you have these kind of concentric circles that um, emanate out from some kind of center, which is often like a founder of an organization, right? I mean, I look at you and, and the team that you're building, right? And and that's your, first, that's your first degree of separation is really the people who show up here every day and, and work on that. And then you've got your next group, which are probably your donors and supporters, and um, maybe, maybe frankly, it's your customers. But you know, then you've got this like, sphere of influence kind of emanating out from this core. If, if that core doesn't have these principles kind of really deeply, or, or rather, that whatever the principles that are start at the center of that, do kind of tri- um, ripple out across that entire uh, community at each of those levels. And so I think when you start to build things that are uh, hopefully enduring, and you have this view of, well, we want to be baked into the fabric. Well, um, you, you can tell the difference even just in looking at the group of people who come, the way they behave. So you have a group of people who seem very, you're, to me, in my mind, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm uh, projecting it on you, but you're building something that to me could get legitimately wrapped into the fabric of how a community works and therefore could last forever. Um, and the, you know, there's a certain calm that comes to the people who are like, for whom that type of vision is appealing. And so you have people who just seem extremely calm, right? And I'm sure that they have panic attacks and whatever. And and it's not—I wouldn't describe you as calm in your because you're a very high energy person. But you—but you do have a certain degree of kind of like it's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out, and we're going to be methodical, and we're going to we're going to really focus on our supply chain, and we're really going to focus on how we get our bags packed, and how quickly are we doing that? Is that the right way to do it? Not because we need to be. 10% faster in order to save 10% more money, but because if you can build that muscle memory, and if you can make it teachable to steal your own phrase to the n- the nth person, it just makes it so much more likely that you're gonna build something enduring. And so you start with this very core of like, I'm gonna make something teachable, and that's part of how you are creating this system that's, that's very uh, more likely, seems way more likely to me to, to endure than were you building something that was like, hey, we're going bigger going home and therefore let's just impact, let's keep churning through people because like our bigger goal is like, how do we touch all these people? And and that that to me would have a degree of like franticness associated with it. I don't think either one is right or wrong, uh, but you can tell from like the, the second, third and fourth employees, like what type of demeanor do they have in terms of like what tone that is being set from the core.
0: Wow. With a, I don't know how we go forward from a compliment that strong for me. Thank you, Nicholas, for being a supporter of the work we're doing. And, th- and thank you for coming on the show and really sharing your, um, the strategic way you're thinking about things. It's really sort of wonderful having the ability to talk to you, not just on a podcast, but in real life. And sort of the way you distill things down into frameworks is super helpful for me.
1: I'm sure the outro music will be on, so I'll just compliment you again, but with Let I think you are extremely purposeful, <laughs> and I think that's, first of all, contagious. And so I think the people around you are more purposeful because of that, and certainly I am. Um, so it's a pleasure to talk about any of this stuff with you, because I think it is a good opportunity to reflect for myself. So I enjoyed it, so thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you. Giving is brought to you by Lemon Tree Foods and produced by Alexandra De Palma. Special thanks to Anna Koppelman. See you next week.